Why are you running? Well, I'm running because I think we need a change in path in Washington, like in Lansing. I think we need more people that uh, have had in real jobs, real connections in their communities, built jobs, built, created opportunity. I, I was fortunate. I grew up in a family that had six brothers and sisters. My dad built trucks on the line. My mom worked at Salvation Army. I was the oldest of seven and managed to save money while I was working as a teenager, work while I was in college at Michigan State, not Wayne State, Michigan State, and uh, begin working in uh, my profession, which I was in 35 years, workforce development, helping adults get the skills to uh, create opportunity for their family, to, to raise their families. In fact, one of our projects was uh, we're the largest contractor in Detroit for the Welfare to Work program, back when Welfare to Work meant going to work, helping people do that. I could make a living and, and uh, help people make their living and I grew up in a family. We were, on, we were on food stamps sometimes when Dad got laid off. We get a food basket when it was a strike through the holidays. Uh, all those things le- left a mark on me that you need to make a difference. You need to be willing to step up. And I firmly believe that currently our nation is in a situation that the same opportunities I, I was able to take advantage of no longer exist because of our, our government. So um, what sets you apart from the other candidates who are running? You've got four other opponents uh, uh, in the uh, GOP primary. I think the extent of business experience I have, the track record I have in creating jobs and helping build businesses. Uh, we, we trained, when I retired, we had uh, 19 campuses that trained 6,000 adults a year for allied health jobs all throughout the, uh, the 10th district, the state of Michigan, and the region. Uh, so not only do we help people get jobs that, that move their family forward, uh, adults, we also help businesses grow in one of the fastest growing occupational areas in the state, healthcare in the country. So we helped the economy and at times when the economy was not in a good place. You ran for Congress before, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in another district, uh, and I believe uh, John Molinar uh, ended up winning that race. Uh, what did you learn from that race, and what are you doing differently this time around? Well, I think it's uh, everything's a learning experience. I, I After that, I also led the campaign, which you're aware of, the Prop 1 campaign uh, to fight against the road tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned from that that... Uh, Working harder to engage the grassroots, to uh, to give people tell you know make a clear distinction of what their options were were important. Uh, Prop one helped me do that, as well as obviously made a significant difference. I mean, almost eighty one percent of the population of the state said, "Are you kidding me? That's the best you could do." <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it, it it didn't just lose. I mean, it lost big. Well, what I was most uh, heartened by, I think, was that we got twenty five percent of the voting po- the eligible voters out on special election day, May fifth. Uh, which is a historic number, to come out and say, guys, we expect better of you. And it's part of what motivated me to decide to run. I view a role as a legislator, either at the state or the federal level, that you're responsible for taking care of the taxpayers' dollars, using them efficiently and effectively. And the second thing is use those dollars in keeping with the will of the voters, not what you think you should do. No one appointed, no one elected these people as, as the premier beings on this earth. They're representatives of the people. Be that. And that's what I intend to do in Congress. So if you are elected to Congress, uh, what is the first thing you want to tackle? We put out a pretty detailed plan. Uh, it's called the Mitchell Prosperity Plan. And you can see it on my website, uh, Paul Mitchell for Congress. And the first thing I list there is to propose a complete repeal of the tax code. People talk about tweaking it. It's 74,000 pages. Uh, it creates a whole lot of employment for CPAs and a whole longer, a lot of stress for people that are earning wages and investors, but it sure doesn't help uh, our economy. To repeal it in its entirety, effective December 31st, 2018, my guess is we repeal it, we'll get people motivated to come up with a tax code that has fewer tax brackets, lower tax rates, 
and actually repeals most of the, the various special interest tax credits. So in fact, everyone is paying a tax and taxes are lower and we actually bring in more revenue as a result. We can grow the economy because it's killing our economy. We have the highest tax rate in the developed world. You're not proposing a, a flat tax necessarily. Uh, what we put forth is a multiple tax brackets. Uh, I would suggest that the tax top tax rate has to be under 30%. The one thing you have to, in my opinion, to be f- effective in this role is you have to have objectives of where you want to go, and then you have to be willing to focus on a solution. You probably receive every day one, if not more, emails a day telling what the problem is and telling you who to blame for the problem, and if you only send money, they might fix the problem. You know, more often than not, they don't tell you the solution. It's, it's, it's a way they divide up our country. It's a way that groups raise money. I call those emails the outrage of the week. <laughs> uh, the reality is, is my intention and what I've been doing throughout this campaign and, and going to Congress, my intention is focus on solutions. If you, yours, may, yours may be a great idea, but if you can move the ball down the field the right direction, uh, I, from running a business I learned, take it, do it. And if you still think it needs work, keep working on it. But don't turn down progress because you think you have the only good idea in town. There's been a lot of talk about entitlement reform, uh, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how you would tweak or, or reform or change Social Security and Medicare. Well, first, I think we have to work on the definition of entitlement reform because it's used pretty broadly. As I referenced earlier, I, I, we designed, uh, I led my company and running the largest welfare work programs in the country, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Savannah, Mobile, Grand Rapids, and now Eastern United States. Unfortunately, what's happened is that entitlements have taken a broader definition to include uh, cash, cash assistance, food stamps, or now SNAP program, but a whole series of, of, of things that are now entitlements. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, and frankly, I think it was more effective, they were, they were an income support program. They were a transition back to the workforce. They have, they've, they've evolved to a whole other being. So we need to stop calling them entitlements. Their income support, their transitional programs, whatever we want to call them. Now, then you go off to Social Security and, and Medicare. We need to peel off SSDI, or at least the, the disability component of that, and put it in a social support program. It, 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 people have transitioned from welfare to now claiming SSDI, and there's now a whole cottage industry among attorneys. We can get you your, your, your benefits. 11% of Michigan's population, workforce age population, is receiving disability benefits in some way, shape, or form. Do you believe 11% of our adult population is disabled and can't work? I don't know. I, I, I only know what I see in the uh, handicapped spaces. Uh, they're, they're usually full. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, I played a lot of sports, basketball, football, hockey, and uh, I've had two surgeries on my left knee. My knees are not, are not great. And my doctor said, well, you know, if you want a permit, we can because you, your, your knees are not good. And I looked at him and said, until I have to crawl on the door, no, I think not. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot of people, and you've seen them at the grocery store, that you wonder, okay, you're parking in the handicapper space, whatever. Uh, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying we need to, we need to rethink what we do with entitlements and address. Now, Medicare, uh, Medicare and Social Security are, are, in fact, entitlements that people have paid for. They've contributed into, and we must protect those. We cannot change the rules on people that are using those benefits or are close to those benefits. It's pulling the rug out from under them. That's immoral. One uh, proposal has been to raise the eligibility age to, say, 70, which for younger workers, that's probably not a, a, a deal breaker. Um, what, uh, w- would that be an effective way of perhaps protecting those programs? I, I've heard a variety of options of increasing that age over a period of time. 
it, the first thing that would have an impact on Social Security is you, if you, is you peel off this, the disability program out of there. It's a huge drain on Social Security. The other thing you need to do is put the payments of Social Security back in, into a lockbox so it can't be rated for other things. Those two things would make a significant improvement on it. You can change the age of eligibility. I mean, Social Security came in place a long time ago, uh, and when, when life expectancies were much shorter. You could change that, but you can only do that for people that are significantly far enough away from retirement that you're not changing the deal on them. That, that's, they, they made a contract effective. They, they paid into it. So where do we cut? I mean, you know, you're looking at uh, a, a huge debt. Uh, I believe it's $18 trillion, sure. something like that. $20 trillion now. It's, it's gone to about $20 trillion. Okay. So um, how do we tackle that? Well, I think the first thing is, is you don't tackle it entirely by cutting. The reality is, is you, you know, cutting, I'm not sure you get there in any, in any reasonable period of time. First, you have to get growth in the economy. So, in fact, you get revenue growth in, the, in their tax rate, in their tax revenues. Uh, you do that through fixing our tax code. You do that by reducing and restraining regulation. In my opinion, we get a fourth branch of government, unelected, the bureaucrats that write regulations where they think they should be completely disregarding uh, the will of the voters, the will of Congress in terms of what they intended the regulation to be. Now, we could talk what those are, but I think that they should have to bring those regulations to Congress for up or down vote. Anything with a $100 million economic impact or more has to be approved by Congress. Frankly, we get a lot fewer stupid regulations. Uh, there's Michigan, uh, the National Manufacturing Association uh, had a study that said the estimated cost of regulations in our economy every year is about $2 billion a year, one-sixth of our economy. Now, what do you cut, which is the other question. Uh, the Budget Control Act of 1974 is the problem. <laughs> the way it was set up, interestingly enough, is you, your budget for the new year, your baseline is the pre- current year's budget. I ran businesses for 35 years. Nowhere in the world did I ever say our budget starts with what we're paying now and what we spent, and then we're going to just see how much we increase. It's incredibly dumb. We got to go. Carly Fiorina was right. We need to go to zero-based budgeting. Now, the federal government's too large to do that every day, every year for every agency, so you do them every two or three years. You rotate through them and require them to justify what they spend on, uh, by program, by activity. Uh, that way we can actually get back to them justifying down to the dollar what they're spending. One of the questions we've talked about with some of the other candidates is the kind, especially those who have legislative experience, what kind of relationships do they have with Democrats, people on the other side of the aisle? Can you work with people who don't agree with you? Well, if you've done what I do in a career, which is workforce development in cities throughout the United States, uh, designing and operating and running welfare-to-work programs, in Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, uh, those aren't exactly Republican bastions. <laughs> uh, I, I assure you that the the mayor in the city of Detroit, we ran programs here for years, uh, wouldn't have known me from from Adam. Uh, I actually did talk to him a couple of times, but the reality is we are in different parts of the political spectrum. Uh, but what they need is someone to get something done, and they respected people that would tell them straight out what they thought would be the answer, what they thought would move it forward, and then come to some resolution. If you think back to days of yore, I mean, Governor Milliken, and mayor, the mayor, Coleman Young, were good friends. They used to disagree vehemently about things, but they still got things done. Uh, I think if you focus on issues and policies and don't focus on personal attacks, you can get much further. Unfortunately, sometimes the, the partisan atmosphere, they can't win on the argument. They can't convince you on the argument, so just call your names. 
It's childish. The voters are sick and tired of it. Well, let me ask you about another thing that you do uh, bring up in your ads, and that is uh, one of the uh, main points is uh, defeating ISIS, crushing ISIS, as, as you have said. What do you think is the best way to do that? Sure. I think the best way to do that is first is support our allies in the region. The uh, um, United States has become an uh, undependable ally. That means that uh, we need to fly missions that actually allow them to drop ordinance as they were appropriate and not a zero-risk policy. We need to provide sufficient support on the ground in terms of, in terms of uh, tactical support to allow them to, to undertake the effort. And no, we're not going to pull out the first time things go scary. Uh, that's the first, probably foremost thing, is provide them support for that. If we do that, I think we have people in the region that will, uh, will undertake, it, undertake the effort. We left Iraq far too early, and as a result, we've got what we have, and we pull the plug on it. Then our president says they were the JV team. I mean, my God, I think you missed something here. You mentioned that uh, we left Iraq too soon. Um, a complete pullout. We, we just kind of we, we we left too much. We left too quickly with leaving behind too few resources, and uh, that's obviously. I mean, I don't think many people bicker that it may have been a mistake. Well, there were those who say it was a mistake to go in in the first place, and among those uh, who have suggested that is uh, Donald Trump, who's the Republican sure. presidential nominee. But you don't, and, and he, he can say that. But you don't. You can't wish away history. That part's done. Uh, which means at that point in time, what do you do with it? You can't say, well, I wish we hadn't done that, so I guess we'll just go back 20 years. I mean, you, you can't do that. You, so, I mean, the reality is, this is the, these are the facts. I mean, the number of times in my business, I had to remind my manager team, it is what it is. Now, what do we do about it? Because you're, the tendency is to focus on what shouldn't be. The way it, that's done. Mm-hmm. You, you, rarely can you undo that. You know that. The question then is, how do you get it where you want it to be? You've got to focus going forward and not being spending all the time and energy on history. That's past. You can learn from it, but you can't rewrite it. Some people, interested enough in politics, try. But that's a whole other discussion. Sure. Uh, so um, one thing that has been suggested as a way to uh, fight terrorism and reduce the risk of terrorism in this country uh, is temporarily preventing anyone who's Muslim from coming into the country. Um, do you think that's a good idea? If not, what would your, what would your alternative be? Well, even uh, even Trump has has clearly clarified that to a great extent. My position on it is is we cannot um, bring in refugees from affected areas to this country if we can't vet them. The FBI director said we don't have the information to do so. The CIA has said that. So the reality is is we can't have refugees here from those countries because we may well be importing terrorism at our own expense. If even 1% of these people are ter- terrorists, we have a problem. Here's the other stupidity part of it. The majority of these people want to stay there if they could be safe. If we just provided assistance in terms of a no-fly zone and provided assistance to our allies to deal with ISIS, they'd stay there. So, and, and frankly, most of say it'd be less expensive to do that. So why don't we do that? You also uh, have talked about securing the borders. Yep. The suggestion has been to build an actual physical wall. What's your idea? Well, I, I think to some extent a wall may work. Other places, technology may work. I think we have to be flexible enough to recognize we have to have a border. If you do not have a border, you enforce it. You're no longer a country. And frankly, to some extent, we've evolved to one that doesn't. It isn't. Uh, last year, almost half a million people entered this country legally with a visa, tourist visa or a student visa, and didn't leave the country. We're up to about 5 million people that are still in this country that have overstayed their visa, and one-tenth of 1% are ever pursued and apprehended. We need to enforce the laws we have, and it's just not coming from the, over the Rio Grande or coming seeking in from Port Huron. 
And by enforcing those laws, we can truly enforce them. I've met with a number of border agents to say it's a catch-and-release policy. Here's a fact that may be useful for you is that there are 60,000 ex-felons that are illegal immigrants in this country that have served time and been released. They're supposed to be deported, but the country they're from won't accept them. Now, the other part of federal law says if you don't accept them back, we terminate any, any visas from your country until you do. We haven't done that. We haven't enforced that. Why not? It's, it's, it's another uh, ill-fated approach on immigration by the current administration, uh, which means that we've got ex-felons sitting here that don't belong here legally. Let me ask you about uh, another issue, uh, uh, and that is violence. Uh, as we're having this uh, conversation, there's, there's a national sure. conversation going on about violence, some of it involving uh, uh, guns uh, and the availability of guns. Can you, as a congressman, come up with something that would significantly reduce incidents of violence and still maintain constitutional rights? Well, I think first is, uh, as the chief executive of this country, and all, which, which the president is, and the leadership of this country should insist that we respect all people. What that means is that when there's a shooting, say Minneapolis or Baton Rouge, which at this point in time needs to be investigated. I mean, we don't know entirely what happened. There's multiple videos. I mean, you take the time and you, and you, you tell people we need the patience to deal with the issue, investigate the issue, and we'll, we'll make sure justice prevails. Because if, in fact, my oldest son's a police officer. If, in fact, that person in the car, that gentleman was shot for no reason, the officer's poorly trained, made poor decisions, whatever the case may be, there must be justice. You can't have justice if people have a knee-jerk reaction. So the governor then of Minnesota immediately the same day blasts the officer. That's not justice. That's politics. The flip side of that is the president of the United States has to say, you know what? We defend, we respect and defend all our police officers. Because I tell you what, when Dallas— He did say that at the Dallas Memorial. Well, and then he wanted to lecture them all that prejudice exists in the world. That is not the place to do that. Five people died trying to protect, trying to, to allow for civil disobedience, and they were gunned down. That is not the answer to our problem, nor is disarming. As my son says, and I wholeheartedly agree, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. What haven't we talked about that you want voters to know? Well, I think that I'd ask voters to check uh, my website and look at it carefully. I believe I'm the only candidate for office that has put out detailed plans to address serious concerns in our country, not political talking points, because that's what I think we need. We need to focus on solutions. There's a plan there to deal with our tax code. There's a plan to deal with the regulations. There's a, I support a balanced budget amendment to, in fact, limit Congress because I don't trust them long term, okay? And I don't think most of this country does. You look at the voters. You know, I saw a, study, I saw a poll during the fall. 80% of Americans believe there's a political class in this country that will do anything to protect power and privilege. 80% of the country. And you look at what was going on in the presidential primary between you know, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. They're telling us a lot. They truly are, that they don't, they don't trust the establishment. They don't trust the political elite. Uh, so I ask people to look at those things on the website because I put forward policies, an agriculture action plan as well, specific things that we, should, we must do to move forward in this country because I want to focus on solutions. With Donald Trump's campaign, uh, there's been some concern that, that if he loses, that it may have a negative effect down ballot, and that would affect people running for Congress so like yourself. Has, has that affected the way you campaign at all? Is it something you, you, you worry about at all? Well, my wife and I met with uh, Carly Fiorina for about 45 minutes on Mackinac Island when she was here. 
and we decided to endorse Carly originally. I strongly believe that the business experience, the international experience she had, would benefit this country a great deal, that her style and communication was positive. She failed to take advantage of the opportunity that was there when her poll numbers went up. So now we have Donald Trump. He's a business guy, different style. But I believe if you look at what happened in terms of the primary vote in this country, he got more votes than anybody else has ever gotten. He got 47% of the vote in the 10th district. He's talking about issues that are concerns to voters. Now, I would like to sit in the front of the crowd sometimes at his rallies and hold up a little sign that says, think first, think first. <laughs> uh, but the reality is he's, he's touched voters. I'm not concerned about it because uh, the, the voters want to hear discussion on these issues. And they want, the other thing they want is they want direct answers. The number of times that people said to me, wow, you answered my question. I talked to them and said, well, you know how long you talked to a politician for 10 minutes? You're still not sure what they said. Uh, people need direct answers. They deserve direct answers. And frankly, many of them say they don't get them.